This is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm your host, Amy Brown. As the state legislature returns for the January session, one of the things that they're working on is setting up the rules that will govern legalized recreational marijuana in the state. After several months of bipartisan work, their last attempt was vetoed by the governor and the legislature failed to overturn the veto. So despite Mainers voting in support of legalization in 2016, the committee is going into 2018 still trying to craft a package of rules that LePage will sign or that will at least garner enough votes to override his next veto. This is complicated by the recent announcement by U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions rescinding the 2013 Cole memo, which had indicated that the federal government wouldn't, in most cases focus on enforcing federal marijuana laws. So the Committee on Marijuana Legalization Implementation held a public hearing last week on LD-1719, an act to implement a regulatory structure for adult-use marijuana to try to find some compromises. The hearing drew an overflow crowd and lasted for several hours, but here today are some of the points that we thought you may find of particular interest or ones that were frequently echoed by others. This starts with the committee co-chair, Senator Roger Cates of Augusta, giving an overview of where things stand presently. I'm Roger Cates. I represent Augusta and nearby communities in the state Senate and the Senate chair. So it is nice to be back and to see, see all of our colleagues again. I thought it might be helpful to summarize where we've been, where we are, and, and where we're going with respect to this committee's work. As we all know LD1650 um, was worked on for months by this committee. We, we passed it out of committee with a 15 to 2 uh, vote. It passed both houses of the legislature. The governor exercised his, his veto authority and uh, the veto was sustained. So since then, uh, the, the chairs and, and, and leads have been, have been meeting trying to figure out a way forward. Um, and we had every intention to go back to work to revisit the bill and to see if um, if we could make, make changes or, or tweaks to the bill that would do two things. One, be good public policy, and two, hopefully gather enough additional votes um, when we finally get down to the House and Senate to be able to actually pass this into law or, or and get the hopefully the governor's approval as well. So toward that end, we met with the governor. We have met with legislative leaders, met with a, a, a number of our colleagues in both the House and Senate, and had meetings with many of you uh, who are here today, stakeholders who have a, a role to play in, as we develop this, this bill. So the, the bill that's before us today if, if you've looked at it, you'll, you'll see, well, where are the changes from LD1650? And there really aren't any except for some dates. And the reason for that is not because we're suggesting we just run the same flag up the, the pole again and hope it passes, but just to get a vehicle in front of this committee as we hear public testimonies we be, and we begin our work process, uh, our work session process. Um, so it's just a legal, it's just a framework for changes to what we did previously. I, I know that we'll be concentrating on, on certain areas. There may be others, but we're certainly going to be looking at the tax structure, um, at uh, the agency oversight issue, and, and to the extent to which we can uh, coordinate as best we can with the medical system. So last week, is, I think everybody in this room understands the landscape really, really changed. Attorney General Sessions produced a memo which essentially repealed the Cole memo which, by which the federal government had taken a, 
a, a, essentially a hands-off policy toward tightly controlled state licensing um, in Maine and in other places. And in its place, Mr. Sessions has purposely or not, I think, created tremendous uncertainty, not only for Maine but for every state. He seems to be leaving decision-making about what to do, both in medical marijuana and adult-use marijuana, uh, in the hands of the 93 United States attorneys, a reality which could, in theory, set up 93 different ways that we deal with with these issues in, in our country. Thought, thought 50 states were bad enough. Um, there are 93 U.S. attorneys. So some U.S. attorneys might decide to prosecute basically legitimate marijuana businesses that are, that are already licensed, while others might uh, essentially continue the, the past policy of, uh, of only concentrating on the, the shady operators and the um, organized crime in the black market. We just don't know. In, in Maine, um, our U.S. attorney is Halsey Frank, and chairperson I have, have reached out to him to, to try to see if we can schedule a meeting in his office um, so we can learn from him what policy he plans to, to implement in his office in the state of Maine so that will hopefully inform our work as, as we go forward, and we're hopeful that that meeting will take place soon. So where are we and where are we, we headed? As a committee, we were charged with implementing the will of the people in the, in the Citizens' Initiative through a sound regulatory bill, and that's what we've been working on for these last months, and that's, the, that's what we intend to do now. But if there's one word to describe our current position, I, that word would be fr frustrating. If you think of this as a football game, we, we just want to know what the rules are. Is football even legal anymore? If it isn't, it's tell us. If, but if football is legal, we want to know what the, what the rules of football are. And hopefully we'll get some clarity on that soon. But in the meantime, what are, what are we to do? Um, some say sh we should just shelve our work until we get that clarification. But at least as chairs, we don't think that's the prudent thing to do. And we could get to April in theory, have the U.S. attorney says he's going to continue the, essentially the past policy, and we don't have time to, to do our work and create a bill. So at this time, even as we seek guidance from the federal government, our job is to continue working on this bill, and that's what we, we plan to do starting today. Chair Purse. Uh, thank you uh, very much. This is committee co-chair Representative Teresa Pierce. I would just uh, concur with everything that the senator has said. I think that we have our work in front of us, and until we learn differently from the uh, outreach that we've done, we'll continue to do our work. I'm delighted to be back. I'm delighted to have a full room again and to hear your thoughts and concerns so that we can maybe tweak or amend this bill in a way that we can get it passed. And we look forward to getting going with the second session of the 128th and the MLI committee. Okay, so again, thank you all for coming. We are um, anxious to hear from you as we begin the, this process of trying to get this, um, this work complete. We do have a list, um, and we are going to win the three-minute clock. We, we generally take legislators first uh, because they have other committees uh, that they need to, to get to, and you may see some of these people coming and going who have other committee assignments. So I know that the, the, Senator Saviello is with us. But by the way... Um, through some arcane rules of the legislature, the three-minute rule does not apply to legislators. But, um, the other thing I wanted to mention is it's not important to us to say whether you are 
for the bill or against the bill. It's not that kind of bill. So we just want to hear from you. Um, I, I doubt that anybody is in favor of every part of this bill, and, and I doubt that anybody's opposed to every part. So we'd just like to get your, your comments about the direction you think we ought to be going. Senator Saviello, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Senator and Representative and members of the committee. I'm, I appreciate the uh, child's table because I often was put there and I still get put there sometimes. And uh, I appreciate coming to this wonderful committee room. And I have to apologize to the good senator because uh, I used his office without permission. And I do apologize to that. Tomorrow it will be my room, so you'll have to ask my permission. Uh, the good senator also told me for how many times I say nice things about him, I can continue on. But I couldn't find anything nice to say about him, so I'll be very quick. Uh, Oh, absolutely. You're absolutely wonderful. And it is a pleasure to be here and, and in front of you and, and this wonderful committee, except for Roger. Um, it's been interesting because this is something I didn't think I would delve into uh, as a legislator in my time getting ready to finish up. But I have some good friends that are in the business and really feel strongly about trying to figure out a resolution to some of these issues. So it's interesting, who are we and who am I representing as I speak? I'm representing Franklin County, uh, which is my district, plus four towns in Kennebec. And I'm in my last term as a senator. I'm on the short list. Uh, and I actually was driving down this morning wondering what I'm going to do next January. But I suspect I will not be in front of this committee. We came together as a diverse group of individuals and entities. And you'll see the list on the top of the sheet that was handed out to you. And if you look at that list, you'll say, ooh, that's interesting, because you've got people to one extreme that really don't want marijuana and to the other extreme that would like it. So I like to think I had so many to the left and right that we end up coming together at the bottom, which has really been very great experience, no matter how this bill ends up, to having worked with these individuals where people have come to the table and had a conversation. I do applaud the committee's work on LD 1650. Many have supported the legislation were disappointed that the legislature did not override the governor's veto. Those of us who didn't support are interested in seeking common ground to advance safe and responsible implementation to protect health and safety of all Mainers while protecting municipal sovereignty. And after listening closely to the governor and his, some of his concerns and to the legislature and key interest op op group opponents, we've come down with several suggested changes which we believe helped build a greater consensus on a good foundation of work that the committee voted on and voted out before. Personally, and those that know me on this committee and know me well, is that I cannot criticize something if I cannot offer a solution. It is not fair. And as some of you know, I surprised sadly my friend, the good senator, when I stood up and asked a number of questions was why I couldn't vote with that. And that's why in my 15 years and almost 16 years in the State House, I see too much of this going on. So that's why I got involved. It's the law, and we need to work with it and make it work. Our stakeholders' core values included four things, safe and incremental implementation of adult use cannabis, protect children and communities, empower municipalities, and maximize the revenue for the state of Maine. Some suggestions we have as a possible amendments. First, under public safety. We believe the moratorium needs to be extended. We suggested July 1st, 2018. We think it should be part of this bill, but I do know that, Roger, I believe you introduced a bill this morning that will address that. But it seems to be nice to put it all in one package. Public safety, under public safety, we believe that you need to look at initial uh, entry, controlling initial entry into the marketplace, 
with limited grower canopy to allow the state to evaluate the effectiveness of the regulatory scheme at protecting public safety as defined in 1719. And I will give you more on this in a bit. Prohibit social clubs for three years or more until law enforcement has adopted a science-based standards and or technology for reliable field sobriety tests and provide adequate training to officers. The committee might consider putting in the bill and making sure that paying for this uh, training be through the tax revenue generated through, through legalization. We believe we should establish an aggressive labeling standard for point of sales, including organic, to protect consumers. Make sure you allow for organic certification labeling if a third-party certification by an organic certifier agent is completed. Sometimes I find the word organic being used very loosely. So to protect those, you need to make sure that it is certified by a third party. There are those that suggest that perhaps it just be MOFCA period. I don't think so because I think there are other third-party certifiers that may be available. And if you get specific and that changes, then you have to change the law. Prohibit common entry and common public space for retail sales of medical and edible cannabis. Strong limits on advertising targeting at individuals under 20 word, 21, including the following. Instead of coming up a list of words that you can't use, come up with a list of words you can use. The three we suggest are cannabis, marijuana, and hemp. Put it in the law. Be very specific. That's all that can be used. Eliminate any use of slang words to connote a state of alleviation, such as wasted or words like weed. And use the tobacco, federal tobacco advertising standards to limit the use of languages and images used to advertising and preventing targeting of children. Prohibit individuals under 21 from working or entering into an adult use cannabis premises. Clarify the landlord rights to prohibit and hold liable tenants for on-premise cultivation or use of cannabis as a term of lease, violation is a cause for eviction. A tenant is li has liability for all damages caused, including uh, due to the cultivation or use of marijuana. We have language that has been drafted by Dan Bernier, and if you need it, uh, we will certainly provide that to you, rather than bog that down in the hearing. Municipal authority. This is one of the issues that was my personal issue that I wanted to make sure that was clarified is clarify the opt-in language. Opt-in at the municipal level is to accomplish by passing a new ordinance, amending an ordinance, or approving a warrant article to allow certain, all, certain or all types of marijuana establishments to be has acceptable use. And let me use my own town as an example. We are not going to have an up or down vote on marijuana use. We are modifying our ordinances so that if someone applies to use, grow, or sell marijuana in our community, they have to apply to those ordinances. That still will have to go to our legislative body, which is the town meeting, to be voted on. The same thing is happening in Farmington. Farmington already has how they're going to modify their ordinances. The only reason they haven't gone to a town meeting yet is that they are waiting to see what happens here in the legislature. So that would be the same as an opt-in. They can have an up or down vote on marijuana use or they can modify their ordinances and I clarified this with MMA I believe that this clarifies what I think their intent would be be done and they can speak later for themselves expand municipal authority over zoning to include retail marijuana medical marijuana as a possibility something you should consider however at the end of the day I believe those conversations probably should be held in health and human services allow um, 
In, in the event we can't conclude anything, and I realize this is probably one of the most controversial pieces of our suggestion, is allow for municipal licensing in the absence of state action to prevent rampant expansion of unlicensed adult use retail stores and then runs on the main law. Something to consider. Prohibit permit municipalities to assess fees to offset the impact of costs, such as law enforcement, external experts, and other costs and impacts similar to the hazardous waste fee. I personally was involved in this when I worked at the mill in Androscoggin where the town of Jay implemented their own fees for the application of our license, which was fully constitutional, but it covered their costs of administering that license, like for our solid waste landfill or for our air, where they were able to bring experts if they needed to come in. Remember, those all have to still be approved by the municipal legislative body. Remove, uh, if the municipality decides to remove the license, it has to be for cause. This may already be in law, but we just felt it needed to be stated. And then we work with Maine Municipal Association on drafting statutory language and can make it available to the committee if you so desire. Executive revenues, rules, and implementation. Uh, I know that the end you added an excise tax. We believe the best way to do this is just do a sales tax of 17.5% to maximize revenue to the state. Uh, this money would be used to assist rulemaking, licensing, and regulatory authority uh, to uh, the uh, Department of Administrative and Financial Services. And this is one that, that I have come to as I've watched more of what's going on in California. I call it the rolling issuances of licensing and it is a way to control, if you will, entry into the market first. The medical operators in good standings in 2014 should be at the top of the pile. And then main taxpayers, and this is where I made very clear the definition of main taxpayers is what we use in our tax laws, which they have to be a, main, a residence and it should be for FOR, not FOUR, 183 plus days of the year. This should be to benefit main taxpayers. It should be benefit Mainers working in the state. And once that that has gone through, then an open licensing period. Now I go back to what I've seen is that if there are problems that occur, this gives you the opportunity to have a more controlled impact on who you have to either stop, put a stop sales on, or to spend the license temporarily. That's why we put that in there. This is very important, and I think it can make a huge difference in the implementation of this. So this is basically a stepwise progression that will ensure licensing is done right and gives time to right the ship if there are problems. Requiring individuals growing marijuana plants of pair uh, property of others to own and to have a land use agreement and physically manage the plants. I know this is one of the concerns that the Senate President has had. This makes it very clear that if you're going to grow those 12 or 18 plants and have them grow on someone else's property, you have to grow them and you have to have a contract to be on that property. I am not addressing in this hearing the medical marijuana issue. Um, personally, I believe it needs to be addressed, and anybody who infers that, that we are suggesting that medical marijuana be included in our rules is incorrect. What I'm saying is, though, I think at the end of the day, the committee's actions by sending it to HHS and working with HHS is the proper way to go, and in reality, this issue will be addressed at some point in time. Uh, but as I said, it needs to be addressed. This is a personal issue. But you right now are charged with developing uh, 1719. I believe that's what the LD number is. And that you need to deal with that. And then, can, as Roger said, I think in the beginning, there may be some common ground that you can work with. My conclusion, our goal has been to bridge the gap between diverse interests to find safe, appropriate ways to regulate and implement adult cannabis in Maine. The recommendations above 
require industry stakeholders to go through great lengths to accept a compromise that is not directly in line with their own personal business interests and ideology. They have ha all had made huge concessions in an effort to advance the policy, and uh, I gave them many speeches about getting on the same page and address the compelling interests of the public health and public safety. If we are to have a regulated adult uh, use cannabis market in, in Maine, we need to protect Maine communities and empower them in decision making, promote Maine businesses, protect Maine's youth, provide support for Maine's law enforcement, and to prevent unregulated market diversion of cannabis. We believe this amendment achieves all of those goals along with 719, and we're looking forward to working with the committee to refine, to find the, to refine the vision and help pass 1719. Let me close. It may be good to add that the stakeholders are directly impacted by this legislation, probably more than anyone else, have gone to great lengths to accept a diverse compromise that is not directly in line with their respective ideologies, but in the interest of democracy and progress, they have made difficult concessions. We hope the committee members and legislatures will join us in this approach. I will attempt to answer questions. If you want specifics, I will put a note down and we'll get that to you. Thank you. But thank you. Senator, thank you very much. Uh, we. Uh, we have a lengthy list of people today, but we are uh, so if committee members do have questions, we'll entertain those with each person who comes before us. And I would but, be glad if you want. I'm sorry, but, but hopefully we'll we'll keep it relatively short so we can uh, keep moving. Do, Senator, thank you for your comprehensive presentation. If people have questions for Senator Savio, and if you don't want to ask them now, prefer give them to me, and I will get answers for you. You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU. These are some selected excerpts from the public hearing held last week by the State Legislature's Committee on Marijuana Legalization Implementation. Yes, Representative Bloom. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Saviello, for this very uh, comprehensive uh, amendment suggestion. Um, I, I'd like to know the, the requiring individuals growing marijuana plants on property other than their own to have land use agreement and physically manage care of plants. What kind of, is this something, a land use agreement, is this something very specific that you're thinking about or is it something that is just specifically, is it, is it something that you have in mind? Um, no, I just think you need to have some kind of a written, whether you want to call it a contract, whether you want to call it just a piece of paper saying, uh, Tom Saviello, I'm growing plants for Representative Bloom. But, or, and, uh, no, I'm sorry, let me say it back. That you would like to use my land and I'm giving you permission to use my land to grow your plants because you can't grow them, you live in a tenement and aren't able to grow them there, and that you and I'll write on there will be physically responsible for watering those plants, irrigating those plants, fertilizing those plants, and maintaining those plants. Just giving a direct control over those, because there are those who are concerned that you wouldn't want anything to, with the, anything to do with the 12 to 18 plants, but you're gonna give me permission so I can take full advantage of that. So this is just clarifying that I am growing them for you, or I'm sorry, you're growing them for yourself on my property. Very simple clarification. I don't think we need to be a lot of details to that. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Senator. Is there any other provision in any other part of our statute off the top of your head where we require private entities to enter into a contract? I, I don't know if I'd call it a contract representative, but just an agreement well, that I'm responsible. A uh, I can't think of anything now, but I'd be glad to look and see if we can find Thank anything. You. There, there may well be. Don't know. Thank you. Enough Thank you very much, committee. Thank I'll you. Be around for, uh, if you need me. I'll be Roger. May I use your office? Yes, you may. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Senator. Now we're going to begin with a list. And 
some some of people here have um, Representative Casas is here, and then we'll go to the list. And um, some of you have better handwriting than others, so I'll try not to butcher the names. Representative Casas. Good afternoon. Thank you. Are there other legislators here, by the way, who want to testify? Okay, go ahead. Yes, sir. Thank you all. Senator Cates, Representative Peirce, thank you all, members of the committee. Um, I'll be very brief. I know you have a, a long line in front of you. Um, just kind of wanted to pass on two thoughts of concerns that I had with the previous bill. Um, I apologize that I haven't gone through um, Rep uh, Senator Saviello's uh, amendment to it, so I don't know if they're addressed in this amendment, but two major concerns for me, one coming from the municipal side. Um, I loved the intent of the kind of revenue sharing of sorts by letting the municipality accept the certain portions of the excise tax, kind of cuts the state out of it. The concern that I had was um, banks being FDIC insured. What does that do to our municipalities? I reached out to uh, Maine Municipal Association to try to understand why they didn't raise that as a concern. They referenced the Federal Controlled Substances Act as offering insulation uh, around individuals of the municipality. However, reading it a little bit further, it does offer the insulation for individuals within the municipality. So the finance director that deposits the check, the suit from the federal government couldn't be brought on that individual, but there is no provision that suit cannot be brought on the municipality itself. So um, town employees, uh, select persons, they're all insulated under the Federal Controlled Substances Act, but the municipality itself could uh, suit could still be brought uh, in that case that was a concern that I had coming from the municipal world again love the intent of the getting the revenue for participating municipalities just wanted to be aware of that um, the other major concern that I had was the max allowable plants uh, for personal cultivation on one parcel or tract of land and uh, with 12 being the max and 18 with municipal approval Having talked with um, a member, uh, many members of this committee uh, about that provision specifically, one of the things that I was kind of struck with was as the conversation went to more allowable plants on one parcel of land, it seemed like those plants, we'll call them 60 plants, so instead of a, a max of 12, maybe it was a max of 60, those 60 plants conceptually seemed to be tied to the land owner. Whereas the way that I was viewing these max allowable plants is if you have 60 plants on your property, they have to be tied to 10 people. You can't have 60 plants on your property without getting certain agreements um, and being able to verify that every one of those plants is tied to another individual. Um, as I, you know, kind of went over what's reasonable and what's not with max allowable plants for personal home, you know, cultivation. Sure, an unlimited amount does not seem reasonable. Um, 100, 150, 200 also doesn't necessarily seem reasonable. Um, but I, I hope that there's a way of uh, looking into having more plants allowable on one parcel or tract of land because there are a lot of folks that will fall into that kind of demographic of I'm not a landowner, um, I don't have access to, or maybe I ha have access to land but that land is already growing 12 plants because the, the two landowners um, are growing their six plants individually and the municipality hasn't upped to 18. Um, so those are just the, the two kind of aspects that I would um, encourage the committee to take a look at uh, and I'm happy to answer or try to answer any questions. Thank you, Representative. Questions? Senator Dion. <clears throat> Thank you. Uh, in regards to your earlier comments about the federal what did you call it? the Federal Controlled Substances Act is the way Maine municipality or 
what's the cause of action that's of concern? So, uh, what is it? The, um, the, 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 the what memo that uh, was recently uh, repealed? Coal. Coal, thank you. The, the coal memo. Um, so the federal government potentially coming after states or municipalities that engage in that was a concern of mine. It's not a huge concern until you start talking about banking, and I just felt that that potentially could open the door more to federal suit. What, what would open the door? So a participating municipality. Um, All right. I, the reason I ask that question, that seems to be the latest paper dragon that's been running around the committee room is uh, municipalities at risk for something that they've been engaged in for some time as far as the medicinal participants are concerned. So here's what I would like. Rather than just the statement, I'd like to have a citation to the code that illustrates this risk, what the cause of action would look like, and if it's the main municipal association, let's get some hard facts around this provision of law. I think I'm curious if there's any substance to that. Um, suddenly, because it's in contest, is this idea that municipalities can't receive tax revenues. If that's the case, I could have some stakeholders that want me to pass similar provisions for the taxes they have to pay because we're making them radioactive. If you wanted me to, Senator, I could take about five minutes and go through my email and find, because it was uh, sent to me by MMA, um, and I can try well, to Mr. get Corbin's that to Mr. Corbin's here from MMA, maybe he can provide us the citations. I just have some difficulty understanding that municipalities will not be able to receive any revenues having to do with this. And as I kind of, again, it's all about being reasonable or being unreasonable, and I tried to go over in my head, you know, is it reasonable to think that um, excise tax on an ongoing kind of quarterly basis would rise to the level of exceeding that $10,000 mark that immediately an FDIC bank has to raise a flag? Um, it didn't seem like that was a highly likely probability in most places but I do think that the potential is still there. And being on the, the local select board in my municipality and, and talking with municipal folks often, it's a concern that I've had. I, I didn't know it was a, a paper tiger running around here. Well, it's it remains one unless it's tied to something concrete. Hmm. I, I, I just, part of what the problem is here sometimes in the community is I've noticed that rumors acquire the legitimacy of fact and then the fact runs rampant in the community, then we have to field all these questions, and they're all conspiratorial, like somehow this committee is involved in some dark government plot to prevent some stakeholder group from achieving their ends. So I think it's incumbent on all of us to be specific, especially if we're quoting law that could have an adverse consequence on our deliberations. And that's, and I apologize to the committee, I'll stand down after this, but I think I'm trying to make my point, let's try to be factual. Because yeah. if it's about rumors or the possibility of things, then we're not going to get a lot done. No, and I, and I definitely respect that, Senator, and uh, was not trying to cast any sort of disparaging um, remarks on the committee. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. Any other questions to Representative? Yes, Representative Bickford. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Just real quick, um, I can't imagine how the federal government with the IRS <laughs> collecting the millions of dollars they're collecting now from tax revenues, from medical marijuana and re, uh, recreational marijuana, wherever it's already legal, um, how they can have a double standard and go back to the municipalities with a suit. 
I couldn't imagine how that could even stand up. And that's not really a question, and I probably shouldn't bring it up, but I just can't imagine how you can hold one municipality accountable when you can't even hold the IRS accountable or the federal government. Thank you. Okay, and other questions? Representative. No, I'm just I'm happy to not try to answer the, the <laughs> IRS question. Um, but again, I, I just want to leave with I, I it's not the most reason the most plausible scenario, but it is a scenario that I thought maybe would uh, stand a little bit of investigation by the committee. Thank you. Thank Thanks you. for being here. You bet. Thank you. Okay. Are there any other legislators who would like to testify? Seeing them, we'll begin the list. And Michelle from Oakland. Good afternoon, Senator Cates, Representative Pierce, uh, members of the committee. My name is Michelle Caminos. I am the mother of a five-year-old boy with a diagnosis of high-grade brain tumor and seizure disorder. Uh, my son has endured countless hospital stays, three brain surgeries, seven weeks of radiation, nine months of chemo, and he's had to learn to walk again and use his right arm three times. He was initially diagnosed at age two with a low-grade brain tumor, then it relapsed two years later and the pathology came back malignant. At that time, we spoke to his doctors about medical cannabis, and they were all supportive, so we decided to do it. And here he is. I wanted you to see his beautiful face. This is my son, David. Um, cannabis has helped David through his treatments immensely. He's been sick in the last year only once, if you don't count the cancer, uh, when he had a mild cold that lasted two days. That's more than I can probably say for most of us in this room, and very few here have likely been through what he has. He not only didn't lose weight, he gained weight throughout his treatment. His coloring was good, his energy, although lower than typical, was good, and his mood was bright. He slept very well most nights. His doctors and nurses constantly remarked how amazingly well he was doing, and we give a tremendous amount of credit to cannabis for this. He's had three MRIs uh, since the end of his radiation treatments last April, and they've all shown no evidence of disease. As if that weren't amazing enough, we were able to wean him off a pharmaceutical anti-seizure drug that had given him a horrific violent behavior disorder. Today he's seizure-free using only cannabis. None, repeat, none of this would have been possible without means caregivers. I'll break it down for you. Dispensaries, number one, can only transfer 2.5 ounces to a patient every 15 days, and two, are not interested in cancer treatment, which requires formulations such as tinctures, FECO, or RSO. Many cancer patients require an ounce of cannabis per day, and most people cannot afford to pay the typical per ounce rates. Um, so they rely on donations and caregivers who often provide reduced rates for cancer patients. Before I learned about caregivers, I went to Wellness Connection to get prices. Even if they could have furnished what he needed in the amounts he needed, which they could not, the cost was exorbitant. I would have had to pay $118 per day, around $3,600 per month, or 40, just over $43,000 a year to get the medicine that my son needed that his doctors recommended in the doses that he needed. Furthermore, even if dispensaries were allowed to focus on treating cancer patients, why would they? There's very little, if any, money to be made in doing so. It's much more profitable to sell cannabis to smoke, vape, or eat. Making a patient's concentrated formula requires care, love, and expertise that they simply don't have. It also requires a commitment to clean, pesticide, and mold-free product that dispensaries don't always have the best record of having. This leaves three options for patients. One, be lucky enough to get donations. 
two, find a great caregiver, or three, learn to grow and process their own product. For obvious reasons, growing is not an immediate option for most people in this situation, and so they rely on caregivers. Therefore, it is critical for patients like David who need safe, reliable access to their formulations that the medical programs stay separate from the recreational program and that the caregiver model, which is working, be protected. It's crucial that the medical program be treated, imagine like this, as, as a medical program and therefore overseen by the health department rather than law enforcement as it currently is, by the health department that is. Um, I respectfully ask that this committee, in closing, think of patients like David when making decisions that could greatly impact his treatment. We must ensure access to the sickest of the sick. We must protect caregivers and patients, and we must not ever treat them as criminals. Thank you very much for your work on this committee. Okay, thank you very much for being here. Did, did any, are there any questions? For, thank you for coming and sharing your story. I, can, I, I think I can speak for everybody on the committee that we that we're not sure what is going to happen as a result of this, but eliminating the medical program, particularly for someone like your child, is, is not on anybody's agenda. That's a huge relief to hear. I, I just will add that even if that's not an intention, I fear that it could be an unintended consequence is, you know, of, of some of the proposals that I've seen, particularly when fees are too high or canopy caps are way too low. Like I've seen things like, as you said, some of them are floating around. They're not going to happen. But I'm here just to be sure that we keep those things in mind when we limit caregivers too much. Thank you. Thank you. This is Maine Currents on WERU-FM. The testimony of the president of the Maine Sheriff's Association last week at the public hearing in Augusta provided some insight into how law enforcement is approaching the current legal limbo of marijuana legalization in the state. Senator Katz, Representative Pierce, distinguished members, uh, my name is Sheriff Kevin Joyce. Um, the Sheriff of Cumberland County, but here is President of the Maine Sheriff's Association. We've reviewed the, the bill, and our, our only request is that uh, out of the 15 committee members that you've set aside, we've noticed that there's not a lot of law enforcement. One could say that the AG's office is law enforcement, uh, member of public safety is law enforcement. We're requesting as sheriffs uh, having one seat on that committee. Uh, our thought is this. A lot of the northern counties have a lot of um, unregulated um, territory. They have no formal governance. And typically the sheriff in that area is um, in tune to what's going on there. So our belief is having that seat, um, number one, gives back to the committee what could be going on in areas that are considered the wild, wild west of, of Maine. Secondly, uh, we have the jails. And there are going to be unintended consequences, just like there are for everything else that we deal with in the jails. And our thought is having a sheriff sit on that board could give the committee a pulse of what is going on, what is affecting the jails, et cetera. And um, that's really all our request is, is one seat on that board. Thank you, Sheriff. Questions for Sheriff Joyce? We give great deference to former sheriffs of Cumberland County here, as you may know. <laughs> And somebody else can use the rest of my time. Thank you. Uh, I, just had, I just had one sort of sure. question. I, I'm surprised that the former chair wasn't right. doing it. It's so quiet. Over we were communicating. <laughs> so I really appreciate that you took the time to read LD um, 1719 and, and reflect on it as a group. And, and really, it's just the commission that you're talking about. You feel like there are other elements in there that are helpful to keep the state safe? And well, you know, everything, it's hard to, in our opinion, it's hard to, you know, there's pros and cons for everything that's out there. 
you know, I can tell you, you probably realize that there are going to be problems. You know, uh, I think you see in Colorado, two or three years into it, seeing some problems that they never thought of. So we know that there are going to be problems. Our hope is that our voice, um, representing our counties through one position, will be able to, number one, tell you what's going on in the pulse of the rural areas, because that's where a lot of the sheriffs put their heart and soul into. And then secondly, uh, you know, I guess 30 or 40 years ago when we were talking about mental illness and, and doing away with some of the, the uh, um, hospitals and stuff, you know, it became the default of the jail. So how does the new law affect the jail or not? You know, are there positive things or are there negative things? So, you know, I think we know going into it that you've got a pretty high hill to climb. Um, that we will see some issues that we've never thought about. And our thought is we want to be part of the solution and not standing up here banging the drum about, you know, what's right, what's wrong. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Sheriff. Doing Sheriff. Good. Senator. This is a... This is Senator Mark Dion. This could be a, just a talk show between the two of us. <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> no, I do have a question for you. And the Sheriff understands we did this in the past when we researched state data. We actually were able to uncover around habitual offenders data they weren't aware of themselves, um, which is a different story altogether. But the point is that sheriffs are a gathering point for a lot of hard data that makes them pretty reliable as a source. And one of the issues that was discussed by the leadership of this committee with the executive branch was this whole idea of impaired driving predicated on the overuse of cannabis. Is there any way you could talk to your fellow sheriffs and determine if they can give us any kind of baseline data as to whether or not the frequency or number of individuals that have been processed at the county jail strictly on drug-impaired driving? Mm -hmm. And if they could cull it out to reflect cannabis-related driving, that would be even more helpful to this committee. Um, I have some assumptions around what that number might look like, but I'll reserve that comment. But I think it would be helpful that the sheriffs could give us some neutral data as to what the experience was last year. I mean, I hear a lot of you and cry about what's going to happen next year. Right. But you might help us inform this committee what the baseline is so we can put it in proper context. Yeah, I would say um, out of the gate, a lot of times we classify things as alcohol or drugs, not specifically the marijuana. So. Um, I will do my darndest to get you the exact uh, breakout of marijuana or marijuana and alcohol, which we call polydrug. My guess is my best numbers are going to come through the main Bureau of Highway Safety because uh, I think they keep track of that. I can probably tell you if we're not doing it in Cumberland County as far as specifically booking on OUI drugs down to that, then it's probably not going to be something that sheriffs can do, but I'll check into that as well. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, thank you, Sheriff Joyce, for being here. Yes. Um, I just searched my mailbox, and it doesn't mean it's not here, but I can't find the Rocky Mountain High Intensity Drug Trafficking Report. And so I'm wondering if perhaps we might have a hard copy delivered for the work session and if, so we can look at it. Yes. And I don't know if those 252 felony arrests that are categorized in that report are broken down in any way, or is it just one lump number? of arrests. Um, Do they say if anyone was arrested who was a licensed retailer or they are unlicensed retailers? As I recall reading it, and um, this was a combination of several of us drafting this, and this wasn't my part, so I'll have to research that. Okay. 
I don't recall it was really specific. It okay. was just talking in general. Yep. You know, for instance, this yep. is what we saw. Okay. Um, it, it is pretty vol voluminous. Yep. So, but I will try to get you a copy as well. I thought I brought it with me, but I didn't. It's great. So. Thank you. And my, if I follow up, Mr. Chair, and my second question is related to that. Do we have any data about felony arrests for illegally selling marijuana in Maine since we legalized medical marijuana? Um, I, I can check on that. That would be great. I can check. Thank on you. That. Thank you, Representative Monahan. Mr. Chair, um, thank you, uh, Sheriff Joyce, for being here. So, one more, one more question to add on to Representative Hickman's about the arrest background. It, we all know the state of Colorado is is um, you know, it's got quite a, a, a tourist destination state, and we heard several times from Colorado uh, representatives that a lot of the issues that were involved with um, the new law dealt with a lot of tourists that weren't quite familiar on the, the usage, the proper usage of of, um, of the edibles of, of mar uh, marijuana. But in terms of this felony arrest information, any indication that some of these might have been from out of state arrests? Is that possible? There again, um, it's been a while since I read that, so I can check on that and I'll also make sure that you get a copy as well so you can glean what exactly what you want out of that as well so thank you thank you Mr. Chair thank you Chair Joyce for being You're here welcome. um let me see miss seeing your family since they closed down the store oh yeah the yeah road. But the new store is pretty good too if you've been I heard it. I've been in there twice <laughs> so <laughs> so, anyways, um, just 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 a question. So, and I know that's probably largely anecdotal anecdotal data that you would probably have, or at least an opinion about this. Um, and you have officers, and not necessarily in my town in in Wyndham. They're they're kind of there, but you know they're more sort of out in the outskirts where there's not police departments or sort of anything else. I, I know that probably you know prior to legalization, your officers probably saw marijuana out there in the field, and I know that they probably definitely seeing marijuana in the, the field now do you care to sort of tell us how that that may have changed you know prior legalization versus legalization now people people have come in and they've talked about sort of the increase of a black market and sort of anything else is there any sort of evidence that you can give us that that's actually sort of happened well before the and I'm assuming before the recreational law or the medical marijuana law okay um, you know, the reality is we didn't spend a whole lot of time looking at marijuana unless it was, you know, brought to us as something that was big, um, you know, because we just had other things to deal with. So, you know, like I was talking to somebody outside the room, you know, we, we would act on it, but a lot of times if it was a couple plants in a field, we just pull it up, dispose of it, good to go. We didn't spend a lot of time trying to track it back to who that was. You know, if we got a big grow or we got a tip on it, then we'd send somebody out and we would take a different action on that. So to say that there was a, a clear line or a bright line differentiation from one year to the other or just prior to this, you know, right now we're all trying to grapple what this means for us. You know, um, each sheriff is trying to figure out. I don't have a lot of, well, I don't have any unincorporated areas, but I can tell you, the sheriffs of Piscataqua, Somerset, and Aroostook, Aroostook has 111. A lot of places to grow marijuana are out there, and nobody's going to know. So, you know, for my challenge, I, I tend to be more of a city-type thing. 
Um, we, we really haven't spent a whole lot of time on it. Representative. Yes. Thank you, Mr. Chair. So, so you're saying that there's probably hasn't been a, a market difference in sort of maybe the black market, or at least as much as you're seeing it be between legalization then or, or what we're sort of encountering no. pre-legalization or legalization. Yeah. Most of it is incidental. You know, we trip on something yeah. and we'll look into it. And that's the way it was before. Okay. Thank you, Sheriff yeah. Joyce. Sheriff, thank you very much for being with us this afternoon. Louis Siegel of Gardner. Good afternoon, Mr. Siegel. Senator Cates, Representative uh, Pierce, and members of this committee that's worked so hard. Uh, I would just have a few comments about the bill. Number one, I uh, would strongly urge you to remember what the people passed. Number one. A regulatory body should not be BABLO, but should be a commission of cannabis control under agriculture where the people wanted it. BABLO has been a consistent failure in keeping alcohol out of the hands of underage uh, users, and there's no reason to expect that they do any better with marijuana. BABLO stands for Bureau of Alcohol Beverages and Lottery Operations. Number two, we wanted the tax at 10% because of the question of a black market. I would urge you to keep it 10% for the state, 5% for the municipality. Otherwise, it's going to be too hard in preventing a black market. Thirdly, I would reiterate what so many of previous speakers have said. Keep medical program separate. Uh, and under the uh, Health and Human Services and make it untaxed. Medicine should not be taxed and marijuana is medicine. Number three, protect main small business interests. That is, as you had earlier emphasized, it should be Mainers, it should be small growers, it should be small-scale manufacturers and small-scale sellers in the community. Number five, protect the municipal authority. Uh, that is, allow the licensing to cover the costs of local regulation, uh, in addition, allowing the 5% sales tax to the community. Uh, number six is to maintain the public education program that you earlier had indicated in the bill. That is vital. Finally, I would like to note that I do not consider and never have considered the uh, Controlled Substances Act a legitimate legislation. We know from John Ehrlichman that Nixon lied intentionally to put uh, marijuana in the Category 1 category as a punishment to anti-war hippies. Uh, and it should never have been kept there all of this time. It has always been dishonest. We know it does not meet the legal or scientific standard of either harmful or addictive that should be necessary. And finally, we know that the head of the DEA has consistently refused to follow the law that uh, that he is supposed to follow the advice of 
the advisory committee, which has consistently said, get it out of category one. He has consistently refused. Thank you very much for your testimony. Questions for Mr. Siegel? Seeing none, thank you for being with us again. Good afternoon, Representative Cates, or Senator Cates, Representative Purse, and members of the committee. My name is Hillary Lister, and I will try not to duplicate too much what people have discussed. Um, most of the areas of concern with LD 1719 are relatively minor that I think could be changed without too much controversy. One was discussed last session by this committee around the definition of canopy. Currently in the bill, canopy is defined as the total area within the licensed premises that's dedicated to live cultivation of marijuana plants, including those which are seedling, plant tissues, non-mature plants. For purposes of licensing, I think it makes far more sense to define canopy area simply as the total area within the licensed premises that is dedicated to live cultivation of mature marijuana plants. This is going to be the measure of how much will actually be produced by the facility. It will also not be an incentive for people to crowd their seedling and non-mature plants into a small place and attempt to maximize a limited amount of licensed space. Um, there's language in LD 1719 around employment policies that adds a section to the Legalization Act specifying that notwithstanding any provision of that act or Chapter 3, an employer may take a series of actions in case of adult use of marijuana. It's unclear, though, the way it's written, how this would interact with the protections under the Medical Use of Marijuana Act that specify an employer may not refuse to employ or penalize a person solely for that person's status as a qualifying patient or caregiver, unless failing to do so would put the employer in violation of federal law or cause it to lose federal contract or funding. Um, I think if this language is going to be in the Legalization Act, it should be clear how and if this affects the medical protections. And if it does affect medical, I encourage that issue to go over to Health and Human Services or the Labor Committee and not be tied to this bill. Um, cost of implementation, looking at the taxes and fees in the bill, while I think it's good that they are a low thing in terms of accessibility to the, to the market, they are also appear to not be enough to actually cover the cost of implementation if Maine's costs are anything like the costs of other states that have gone down this path. Um, the fees are lower than any other state, especially for large cultivation facilities and retail stores, with the exception of Washington State, which has the highest taxes of any state. States like Colorado and Oregon that initially put in very low fees for adult use found out that it would not cover the cost of implementation, and both states ended up looking to the medical marijuana program to recoup the costs, both raising fees for medical marijuana cultivators and, in some cases, tapping the medical marijuana program fund, which is something that's happened repeatedly in this state, and I hope that that stays separate. In terms of department oversight, I think the way it's set up in terms of Bablo running adult use retail stores, regulating that makes sense, or social clubs. However, it makes no sense for Bablo to be involved with regulating <coughs> medical access to cannabis. The needs of patients are distinctly different from the needs of recreational consumers in many cases. I only have limited time, but just some examples. People treating Alzheimer's disease use very low-dose medications. People with compromised immune systems may be only able to access certain ingredients and in preparations. 
children with seizure disorder who are using a specific preparation would not be served at all by the adult use market. So I urge as many people have previously that medical and adult use stay separated as much as possible. And I thank you for your time and happy to answer any questions. Thank, thank you for joining us again. Senator Maker. Thank you. Thank you, thank you for being here. Thank you. My question is that, you know, I hear it continuous today, is that we don't want to join these. Uh, how do the other states do it? Are in, where, are, where is medical marijuana and who has control over it in other states? Um, it varies by state. Some t states, or Washington State did put the liquor board in charge of medical marijuana, and I think Washington State has seen the greatest loss to patient access of any of the states. Colorado has a specific, a specific marijuana regulatory committee that deals with medical and adult use, but it is separately regulated within that. Um, I'm not exactly sure what the solution is other than that Bureau of Alcohol is not the location for regulating patient access. Thank you, because I, I, I wondered that. I wondered where the other states were having it, because we've heard it, but we haven't heard the other states and how they're doing it. So yeah. thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes, Representative Corey. Thank you, Mr. Chair. I've, I've sort of heard it loud and clear today about not putting medical sort of under Bablo, but what, what, are there any of the organizations you represent, what are their thoughts that maybe taking something like our medical program, putting it under DAFs, having it separate from recreational and have two sort of parallel programs? What I kind of think about is um, Colorado's MED, so their Marijuana Enforcement Division, they definitely have, you know, both of them sitting under one regulation body, but they're regulated separately. I would say that Maine is starting from a different place than other states that have legalized adult use on top of medical marijuana. We have by far the most, I'd say, well-structured and pretty unique and self-funded medical marijuana program of any of the states. So I think most people, they'd like to work with what we have and improve what we have in place currently under DHHS and Department of Agriculture, which both have regulatory authority especially in light of the un lack of clarity around what federal priorities are going to be and what the U.S. Attorney for Maine is going to see as a priority. We've had a medical marijuana law in Maine since 1999. We've had it under Department of Health and Human Services since 2010, and we have not had federal intervention even prior to the Cole memo, memo going into effect. So I think improve what's working, but I think drastic changes at this time would really jeopardize something that's taken a lot of time and effort to build into something that's really unique for this state. Thank you, as always, your wealth of knowledge. Thanks. Thank you. Last week's public hearing on LD-1719, an act to implement a regulatory structure for adult-use marijuana, was followed by committee work sessions. More information about the Marijuana Legalization Implementation Committee and their progress can be found at legislature.maine.gov. You've been listening to Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm Amy Brown. Join us here every Tuesday at 4 on Community Radio WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. And keep it tuned here for Democracy Now! coming up next, followed by Jazz Alchemy and Sabor Latino. See you next week.